afternoon. Welcome to the panel, RNZ National. Joan McCarroll, editor of NZ Gardener and novelist Rajorshi Chakraborty joining me today. And annual inflation remains stubborn. It's hardly budged. Annual inflation is at 7.2% and remains at a 32-year high. The Consumer Price Index looks at hundreds of goods and services, 649 haircuts, kitchen taps, the price of a taxi, and figures are out today, and so it looks like the price of that broccoli you're going to pick up after work, that's not going nowhere. With us is ANZ Senior Economist Finn Robinson. Kia ora, Finn. Are you there, Finn? Good afternoon. How you Good going? afternoon. Good, thank you. Now, uh, so the inflation rate was down only just. Are you, were you expecting that? Yeah, no, we, we weren't. Uh, it was a pretty disappointing uh, inflation print, to be honest. We were expecting inflation to fall to 6.6%, uh, and instead, as you said, it, it barely moved. So, yeah, not really moving in the right direction. There were those falling petrol prices, but that didn't make a dent? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it didn't really. And the reason for that is we had so many other prices in the economy going up faster that uh, the drop in petrol prices over the September quarter was swamped by other increases. So, Finn, who is mostly going to be affected by this? Well, it's, it's really going to affect everybody in New Zealand. So high inflation, you know, primarily impacts uh, lower income households. And that's because a lot of the price increases we're seeing are concentrated around you know, shelter, uh, transport and food. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the antidote to high inflation is higher interest rates. And, you know, that tends to impact people with mortgages as well. So it's going to impact a lot of people in New Zealand and pretty much every household. Every single one of us, Raj or she, are going to be impacted by this. You go to your local supermarket, Raj, and you see that tomato, you see the lettuce, you go, oh, my goodness me, is there anything cheaper? Absolutely. And he describes the perfect storm of of being beaten by inflation and by and buffeted by higher interest rates as well. But, I mean, what I wanted to say was that I, on some level I do feel for the government in this respect because in lots of ways this is not a crisis of their own making and nor is it a force that they can fully tame. I mean, this appalling war of Putin's that, you know, he intends to keep going indefinitely, despite the many disastrous outcomes for everyone involved, and how the ripple effects of that on global food and fuel prices have a big role to play in inflation here. Um, But I do feel that what is in the government's hands is to show itself to be to be sensitive and responsive and continue to to people's hardships and um, continue to offer concrete help wherever it can. So, for example, um, you know, right now we're talking about the incredible cost of vegetables, you know, to revisit that idea of at least temporarily removing GST on fresh food. So to offer a kind of relief that they did, for example, with petrol and with uh, public transport fares. Yeah, um, actually, Finn, can you respond to that? Uh, whether or not uh, the annual rise in prices of goods and services are prices determined locally or overseas? Um, uh, Raj says, look, you know, not of not of our own making necessarily. But um, what's the uh, uh, what, what does the research say? 
Yeah, so there's a bit of both, really. Uh, in the data that we look at, we sort of tend to try and divide inflation into what we call non-tradable, which is more domestically generated, and tradable, which is uh, sort of imported inflation. And the classic example of that is petrol, because that's, you know, prices for that are determined by what happens to global oil prices and the New Zealand dollar. That's very much a global story. And what we're seeing is about half and half of it is global versus domestic at the moment. And so, yeah, there's absolutely real challenges out there uh, for, for, for governments and, and for central banks. And, and the problem that we saw in today's data was that the domestic side of inflation is getting worse and the global side of inflation is not falling away as fast as we thought it would. Okay, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have... Um, I wouldn't call myself someone who is particularly economically literate. So when you hear things that are, you know, the consumer price index and the tradables versus non-tradables, I mean, that's kind of a, a lexicon I don't really feel I understand. Um, but I would say that I'm absolutely aware that every time I leave the house, things are just costing me more and more money. Um, and... I feel just tremendous sympathy uh, for people who who are more exposed to that than I am um, because it just feels harder and harder. And again, the thing that I would say, which is not a solution, I'm not claiming it's a solution, but a friend of mine who's a journalist at Stuff, Emily Brooks, wrote an opinion piece the other day about we can't garden our way out of a cost of living crisis, which is 100% true. We cannot. Gardening is not a solution You're the editor of the magazine itself. Yeah. But I would say if you are in a position where you can have a garden, it is something you can do Oh, too. come on. They take months. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to that. I just want to ask uh, Finn, um, does this also mean that higher mortgage rates are inevitable? It looks pretty likely that interest rates will be rising uh, further than we previously thought. Uh, you know, we, we're now expecting the Reserve Bank to lift the official cash rate, which uh, sort of t- determines uh, interest rates in the broader economy by 75 basis points in November and February, which is three times what they usually increase it by, uh, precisely because inflation pressures have been so strong. And so absolutely there's a risk that we, re- we start to see interest rates rise again uh, over the coming weeks and months. Mm, goodness gracious me. Kia ora, Finn. Appreciate your time. That's the ANZ Senior Economist, Finn Robinson. So, yeah, just coming back to that briefly. So, uh, veggies, OK, rising 24% in the latest quarter. So people come out, write articles, write, uh, talk about it here on the panel, about start growing your own food. We so have the editor of NZ Gardener on this very, very show. What do you do? I grow a lot of food at home. But, I mean, you know, I'm in an incredibly lucky and privileged position of owning a home, having a garden, all of that. I'm not claiming if you are incredibly stretched in terms of your time and resource, you know. What are you pulling up tonight? um, I'll probably harvest a bit of spinach, make spinach pita, I think, tonight is the plan. Get a bit of um, mint to make a mint and yogurt sauce. Um, There's a few potatoes. Might doesn't go very far, though, does it, Raj? Do you you have a garden? Um, we do, but uh, I'm I'm not a gardener myself. My father-in-law is to some extent, but um, but no, we we uh, one of the things we've done a lot of to to keep the place of vegetables in our diet is look at the frozen cabinets and uh, and bring a lot yeah. of those on board to for our stir fries, for our spinach. Um, 
And that's the better answer than going, doing a garden, is it? I Buying frozen more than putting a garden in. That's more realisable. I think um, the right tool will be different for different people. Right. And I'm not claiming this is a solution. I'm claiming it's something you can do. And I'm aware if of how powerless you feel. Um, it's nice to have a tool where you feel you can take some, um, some power back. Um, grow a few things. I'm not saying you'll live off the land, but if you could harvest maybe a salad um, every few days, that is oh, uh, something you can do, and it, it can help it. with your food bills. Wallace, <laughs> you need to eat more salad. Yep, fair enough. Uh, 18 past for the panel. The SBCA says the greyhound industry has had enough time to change uh, its uh, weight, and now is the time for an outright ban. Racing Minister Grant Robinson has warned the industry it has been put on notice, but the SPCA says they've already been given enough chances. The Petition Select Committee at Parliament is currently considering a petition to ban commercial greyhound racing. With us is the SPCA Science Officer, Dr Alison Vaughan. Dr Vaughan, kia ora. So tell me, why it is uh, interesting, looking at the history of this, you have actually tried to work alongside the greyhound racing industry. In fact, you have. Why do you now say it's time to call, call time on the greyhound industry? Yeah, so as an evidence-based animal welfare organisation, our preference is always to work with industries to improve animal welfare. But as you've said, we have tried for years to work with the greyhound racing industry in New Zealand. But a decade of report after report that revealed ongoing issues with transparency, data recording and animal welfare has shown this is an industry that has been given enough chances. And that's why we launched our campaign no more chances, and are encouraging people to pop on to spca.nz slash no more chances and send a letter to the minister to have your say. There's quite a few people. There's a, the, the, this petition to ban commercial greyhound racing is at 37,000 uh, people. People are quite uh, passionate about this uh, topic. Um, I'd like to know, Alison, why has it gone on for Years. There was a report in 2013. There was the Hansen report in 2017. What's happening? Yeah, that's a great question. We definitely feel like this industry has been given enough chances. And with the government last year taking that unprecedented step of actually putting the industry on notice, saying this is your final chance, we have a real chance to actually see an end to this. And the minister indicated social licence is key to the decision about the future of industry. And a missing piece of the puzzle has been what is the opinion of the New Zealand public? Like, we know what the industry thinks, we know what the critics think, and we know what animal welfare experts think. Um, but we wanted to know what the public think. Well, I tell you what, I, I can tell you what the, uh, before the panellists away and what the association thinks. They made a statement to us. They've said, look, they've made significant changes and they're submitting a progress report to the minister by the end of the year. And they say any decision would be premature to make before that time. Uh, for example, euthanasia of greyhounds for no reason other than no longer being competitive at a racetrack entirely eradicated. They're hiring a new national track manager to oversee all racing tracks. They're doing things, Alison. Yeah, I would say that uh, removing unnecessary euthanasia, which is purely for not racing fast enough, is a very low bar. What we have seen is that while um, euthanasia rates have decreased somewhat, which is positive, injuries continue to occur at an unacceptably high level. And while some steps have been taken to reduce injury rates, 
there is actually an overall trend for an increase, a steady increase in serious injuries. And this is during the time when the industry is on notice. Alison, if a ban was passed, what would happen to all the racing greyhounds there are now? Yeah, that's a great question. So we know there are approximately 3,000 dogs involved in the industry right now. And um, what SPCA is proposing is a transition period, which would allow for a time for the people and the animals involved in the industry to uh, uh, have this industry wind up whilst also safeguarding their welfare. Raj? Um, Yeah, I mean, from the article that um, I read, the evidence of harmful outcomes for the animals seems overwhelmingly clear, as does some indication of public support for a ban. And it led me to wonder, speaking of this specific government, that if in this case, you know, Minister McAnulty's hesitation kind of might have something to do with his being from a rural constituency where maybe support for the practice is higher. And and that led me to think whether kind of labor in general is picking its, quote, battles with rural communities and prioritizing. So, for instance, the new agricultural emissions regimen was deemed to have greater priority, understandably, but maybe they're holding back on other fronts such as this because, you know, they don't want to be seen as enemies of everything that um, kind of people do in, in rural and semi-rural communities. It was That's my thought. Alison? Mm, that's a, an interesting point. But I would say that the government has taken an unprecedented step to actually put the industry on notice, which uh, and there is a process underway. Um, as Greyhound Race in New Zealand have noted, um, this decision is due in the coming months. Um, what SPCA is asking for is for people to take this opportunity. The minister has indicated that social licence is key to the decision about the future of the industry. He needs to hear from the people of New Zealand. Just finally, Um, uh, yeah, Dr Vaughan, I I, I see that we are only one of seven countries in the world now where commercial greyhound racing still exists. It's been around since, what, uh, the 1900s. It's a very uh, old industry. Is it fair to say that it's a sunset industry, that the time will be nigh? I would absolutely agree. There's currently only seven countries in the world that still have a commercial greyhound racing industry, and even there we see signs of change. Um, just last week, the future of the greyhound racing industry was debated in Scottish Parliament with cross-party support for a ban. We've seen in New Zealand 74% of the New Zealand public would vote in support of an end to greyhound racing, and the majority would be disappointed if the government did not ban it. Good to have you on the program. That's uh, Dr. Alison Vaughan from the SPCA. Uh, Dr. Vaughan's a science officer. What are your thoughts on uh, greyhound racing there? 24 past four, Joe McCarroll and Raj Chakraborty with me. Uh, some people are saying, Wallace, can I just address this to you, Joe, please? Wallace, you are being very rude to your gardening guest. I'm very disappointed in you, says Sandra. Thank you, Sandra. I mean, manners cost nothing. Um, no, I mean, it's a big discussion that we haven't really had time to have um, and definitely a more complicated discussion than saying you can grow your own, garden your way out of poverty. That's an absolutely simplistic well, and absurd statement. I agree with Jim Wallace. I tried to grow some Brussels sprouts and they grow big but no sprouts. So much for home gardening and that always happens to me. I, well, you know what I grow? Brussels sprouts in Auckland. I, I grow leaves. <laughs> well, you're growing, you the wrong, you're growing the wrong crop. Growing the wrong crop. Brussels that's, sprouts that's in why, a cold winter. That's why Raj says get your frozen foods from the supermarket. Anyway, 25 past for uh, the panel. Only one in ten Kiwis who have a cardiac arrest survive. 
but a campaign by St John is hoping to change that. This October, the not-for-profit launched the campaign Three Steps for Life in an attempt to train 10,000 people in CPR. To tell us more, I'm joined by Assistant Clinical Director at St John's, Chris uh, Gagliardi. Chris, kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Why I got you on, Chris, was I was actually, and quite frankly, stunned at that stat. One in ten Kiwis who have a cardiac arrest survive. That's quite something. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, our cardiac arrest survival rates in New Zealand um, are frankly dismal and survival rates have dropped off uh, since and following the pandemic. So, you know, it's only uh, 11% of people that suffer cardiac arrest that have a sudden stoppage of their heart uh, actually survive. And so, you know, things like uh, CPR, a really early 111 ambulance call, and and using an AED, which is a portable emergency defibrillator, uh, is absolutely key. I think this might change my thinking. I might have to join up to, uh, to to learn how to do this. So hands up me. I don't know CPR. Joe? Oh, I did the course, but it would be a long time ago. Okay, Raj? Um, Likewise. I mean, this has really impacted me, and it would be a course that I would sign up for. Um, those stats really had an impact. Okay, so that's three of us who need to either refresh or learn. Did you say it impacted you personally, Raj? No, I mean, my wife recently did a first aid course that included CPR, and she felt so much better informed as a result of it. So um, um, it is a course that I think it's a great initiative, and it's a course I'd definitely like to do. Yeah, I agree with you, Raj, because actually I have never used CPR, but I have in my life had people... um, die after a cardiac arrest and so you think to yourself if I had been there would I have had the skills I needed to help them to give them the help that was possible um and I and and I wonder if I would have I wonder if I would have had the confidence um because I'm talking about a course I would have done probably decades ago yeah Chris yeah look it's it's a great point um there is um a bit of hesitancy out there among the public about performing CPR and uh, people wondering whether they'd know what to do. And I think the key thing is that doing something is better than doing nothing. So if you don't do chest compressions when someone is in cardiac arrest, the survival falls even further, far below that um, 11%. And, you know, a really reassuring thing for people that are worried about doing CPR is when you phone 111, the call taker uh, who takes down the details of where your emergency is will actually guide you through it. So um, you're not doing this on your own. You do have support. And, you know, a lot of people are also worried about doing breaths. And, you know, to keep it really simple, um, it's okay just to do the compressions uh, for an adult that's had a cardiac arrest. Um, Push hard and push fast in the centre of the chest around 100 times a minute. And, you know, you're going to be putting the person in front of you in a much greater position in terms of their uh, potential survival. Yeah, fantastic, because I guess uh, you've you've brought it really home, uh, Joe. Um, what if, Chris, you need to bring those tools to use? And it can happen when you least expect it. You might be at a cafe, you might be at a swimming pool, you might be at the gym, and all of a sudden your skills will be called on, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it'll be when you don't expect it. And yeah. I think it's, it's, it's really key to go on uh, one of these uh, Hatohane St. John Three Steps for Life courses because it will mean that when you're confronted with 
someone that's in cardiac arrest, and let's be honest, um, for an individual member of the public, this is not a common event, um, you will have you know, a sense of confidence and you will you will feel like at least you've had some training and support. So, you know, giving up an hour to do a free um, Three Steps for Life course is going to be a great thing. Um, getting that early uh, one-on-one call in progress so you can get some support from a trained uh, ambulance call taker who can help you with uh, the resuscitation with the CPR um, and also trying to um, find a nearby AED, a nearby defibrillator, which um, are becoming much, much more common. Okay. Um, it's really crucial. Oh, yeah, you got me thinking, Chris. Um, uh, really great stuff, and thanks for um, coming with this panel to highlight the issue. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That's the Assistant Clinical Director at St John, Chris uh, Gagliardi, there. Uh, they want to um, train 10,000 people in CDR. It's a campaign that's called Three Steps for Life. Meanwhile, I think your gardening feedback is rolling through. Uh, Wallace, um, lentil sprouts are easy to grow in a sprouter indoors and they are full of protein and can take place in the take the place of an expensive lettuce in your salad. Uh, Katrina, and you can use the lentils in your cupboard. Oh, really? Or the okay. mung beans in your cupboard. The, the, if you've got whole lentils, you can sprout them and grow your own sprouts. Yeah. Julian says, I agree. Wallace, stop being so negative about gardening. You are being rude to Joe, who is too polite to tell you to pull your head in. <laughs> so I'm just, I just want to say to everybody, that I'm, not, I'm not anti-gardening this afternoon. I'm not, I'm not telling you to pull your head in. Um, I'm not being anti-gardening. You know what I grow? Do you know what I grow? I grow parsley. Okay. Curly or... Just your, just, just your normal parsley. <laughs> and I cut it, I chop it up, and I put it in my tomato soup. So you, no one out there can troll me and say I'm into gardening, because I'm not. I'm just, I'm just putting it to you that Raj's yeah, idea making, is far better. You're making a valid point, Wallace, that it's, uh, it's not um, for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and, and to the point, don't waste your time trying to save money gardening. Take advice of your sensible guest Raj and hang out with your dog. <laughs> <laughs> Your beans on toast will make you as happy as if you're having a steak. So there you go.